Welcome to the Northern Business Podcast. Each week we talk to people active in business and the economy about the big issues driving growth in the north of England. We're sponsored by Virtue Motors, one of the UK's largest motor retailers. Check out its website at virtuemotors.com. I'm Graham Robb, owner of Recognition PR. We help scores of businesses promote their products and services. Some are featured on this podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast or sharing it on LinkedIn. We're live on LinkedIn at the moment and you'll be able to pick up a recording over the weekend. Both our guests are joining me down the line. We've got Gareth Hoyle, who's the Managing Director at Marketing Signals, and Andy Lord, Founding Director of Hydrogen Safe. And later, my colleague Josh will be talking to Rachel Deans, Group Head of Learning and Organisation at the Salutum County and education business. Uh, gents, welcome to you down the line. We're both in the northwest, in the north of England. Uh, Gareth, you're in Wilmslow? I am in Wilmslow, yes. Posh Wilmslow, very nice, nice to yeah. just lever up, lever it all up today. Andy, you're joining us. You're based in Manchester, aren't you? Yeah, rainy Manchester, no stereotype needed, right? Very good, very good. Well, Andy, I'm going to kick off with you. Uh, the business we can see from behind you, Hydrogen Safe, and you're operating in the new hydrogen economy. Obviously, hydrogen as a as a, a, a quantifiable uh, source of energy has been around for over 100 years. You know, the, the Hindenburg had hydrogen, airships and all sorts, and hydrogen's been used in industry for a long time. But now it is emerging as a new climate tech-friendly uh, fuel. Uh, how do you see the hydrogen economy uh, developing in the north of England? You know, first thing I need to pick up on is everybody that you speak to about hydrogen, the first thing that they say is about the Hindenburg, right? And and that's part of the challenge of this new economy that's being created. So if you if you follow government, and I'm sure lots of your listeners do, there was a really important announcement in December, December the 14th, I think, for the statals uh, of last year, uh, which was the unveiling of the first government-funded contracts or contracts for difference, depending on which contract it was, for the hydrogen economy. Prior to that, it was a bit of a lonely crusade I was on, telling the whoever would listen that hydrogen is about to come down the pipe, no pun intended, and will be transformational for the energy sector, uh, it will be transformational for the labour market, which is kind of where I'm what I'm really passionate about. So depending on which view you take, uh, the government have promised, and I'm saying that with a smile on my face, that up to £2 billion of investment uh, by 2030 to help reach the targets that will help with net zero. It is a, a an industrial revolution in its own right, and also really well-kept secret for some reason. I'm hoping today allows us to educate a few more people about it. Well, I, I completely agree with you. And, and I think with hydrogen and nuclear, they've both got these tropes that, that people trot out, which I just did, that make them appear more risky than they are. But they are clearly uh, climate-friendly sources of power. And my own home is off-grid. I have an oil tank to fire it. Uh, it would be great if I could have hydrogen delivered into a, a hydrogen tank, the way LPG gas is delivered. That isn't really that easy to achieve now, even though the new boiler would use uh, hydrogen, and a lot of boilers can use hydrogen, can't they? Yeah, well, there, there was an unmitigated PR disaster that happened last year. Um, 
I won't name any names, but it was about kind of hydrogen in the hole. Um, it was said to be an experiment. I think that's exactly the right word to put hydrogen in people's houses so that people could get beyond the fear factor. Mm. Hydrogen is a gas. It's the most abundant gas in the universe. The gas that you, that most people use at home is a flammable gas. So there are lots of parallels with an energy source that we have today that we've kind of just accepted as being, it's okay. The, 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 the gas registered guy comes and installs and fits and checks. We have the household names that look after it. Hydrogen is a, a fuel source. It's unique in that when it's burnt, uh, the only thing that it releases is water. So it is the greenest of green fuels, but it's going to be some time before it becomes part and parcel of domestic use. Commercials come in first. Now, if we look at commercial use of hydrogen, the first issue when it comes to whether hydrogen is the greenest of green is how it is made. And yeah. uh, you are now seeing in the northeast applications, planning applications coming forward for what they call green hydrogen plants and blue hydrogen plants. And the blue hydrogen yeah. plants will maybe use some fossil fuel to make the hydrogen, albeit you might have some recirculation by using carbon capture and storage. And the green hydrogen plants will use renewables like wind farms and so on to make the hydrogen itself. Now, once you get the fuel, the question is, what do you use it to fuel? And you're just yeah. saying industry, but also some heavy transport. Yes, yeah, so or the aviation industry. Uh, again, it's well-kept secrets until you go and Google, which I'm really impressed. You, you clearly have before our chat, so thank you for that. You'll see that the aviation industry, the huge kind of shipping industry, they are already way, way further down the line than you might imagine when it comes to adopting hydrogen. Um, there's lots of the stuff that makes the, the kind of common day press or the headlines is around automotive, the, the use of um, hydrogen cells in automotive industry. And uh, JCB uh, announced last year uh, that stalwart of the agricultural uh, world that they are going to move their kind of new product range to be hydrogen fueled. And if you'll noticed, what's happened is kind of heavy industry has missed out the electric battery, the e the EV thing, the, the the promise of the green future that that lots of people were looking forward to, has already kind of moving to second place on the grid. Yeah, I was talking in an industry event in the Northeast uh, last week, uh, and one of these uh, um, digger manufacturers, not G JCB, another one, uh, was there and pointing out that, you know, it'd be nice to be electric, but actually if you needed a battery to power a JT, uh, the equivalent of a JCB, then you would require it to be charged overnight at very fast chargers with huge loads. And so before you put it on a building site, you would have to get the power at huge load to charge it up overnight. Or yes, device the oxymoron, right? Yeah, yeah the, the oxymoron. And without without being on any kind of campaign, because I'm not, I'm on the campaign of this is going to create economic growth and employment. Um, the electric power, uh, clean energy at one level, is the stuff that makes the battery powerful mm. that isn't the clean part of the power. And you're right, something that's going to take a huge amount of energy to drive it or lift things or drag things, the battery will end up being bigger than 
the unit itself and the charging of it just incredible right? there's, just, there's just not enough grid power yeah. to do that it's not like plugging in your tesla at home even though that takes quite a lot of power and now the other the other thing that i'm seeing in the hydrogen economy that i can witness around me in northeast england this podcast coming from the northeast is um a vehicle um sorry uh, heavy vehicle manufacturers that are making uh, engines uh, in Darlington Cummings engines which is famous for making the engines for the red buses in London but they make it for major trucks they are now developing hydrogen products uh, whether they for, be for Britain or for export yeah well again th there is lots of money being thrown at and quite rightly so by the way I'm not saying that with a uh, a level of cynicism, lots of money being thrown at. How do we get to our uh, 2030 targets of net zero, depending on where you are in the country and in the world? Hydrogen isn't going to be the only answer, but it will form part of a huge cocktail. It'll be a big part of the cocktail that will uh, eventually, hopefully, take us to net zero. It, it's kind of, it's inescapable. It's a big surprise to me, actually, um, that we are so far behind mm. most of the rest of the world, right? It's a, it's a new thing for us in the UK, and it's not new elsewhere. It is interesting what was new 100 years ago and what's going to be new this next century. I tell you, I own an older house. It's off-grid. It's uh, very old. And I was looking at uh, some old documents the other week, and it only had electricity installed in this house in the late 1920s. And if you think of me, if I was... Uh, advising a young man or woman, probably man in the 1920s, uh, to get a new trade so he was in the forefront of technology, it would be to become an electrician because yeah. the world was at that time electrifying and to know which cable goes where and understand amps and watts and the way the way electricity flows, that would have been a really high-tech job in the 1920s. Now here we are in yeah. the 2020s and you're helping people to train to know hydrogen. So what kind of things are you helping them to train in? It's a it's a, a really interesting kind of point. Well, it is for me because I'm, I'm fascinated by the, the economics of employment. Now hydrogen is uh, common parlay, right? We're, we're, we're used to talking about it. One of the challenges faced by the industry, I'm a member of Hydrogen UK, the Hydrogen Skills Alliance, the Hydrogen Energy Association, there are more and more of these kind of bodies who are helping to lobby government, setting up all the time. I attend their online conferences and Zoom chats and Teams talk. Some of them are really, really techy. I'm, you know, I'm not producing hydrogen, but the common theme amongst all of them, all of the the producers, the manufacturers, the stories, the distributors, is whilst there are lots of transferable skills. Uh, so people who work in the utilities industry can probably transfer easiest. There's such a lack of education and knowledge about what hydrogen is, does, how it's produced, how it's transported, which is why I smiled before, because I bet you if I had a pound for every person that started off with, I know hydrogen is about the Hindenburg. I think there's a bomb. It kind of, it doesn't normally get much beyond that. So we registered the world's first. It's not often you get to say that, right? So I'm going to say it two or three times. We registered the world's first um, off-qual regulated hydrogen qualifications in uh, awareness. It, it, it's to allow people who 
probably should or could access the opportunities that are coming across the whole of the country, the whole of the UK, to give them an insight into all of those basic things, first of all. So we've got a qualification, a level one qualification in awareness. Our level two and level three qualifications are being built. And when I say being built, it's because we are working with industry so that the very specific stuff that we are kind of putting into our courses and then educating people on uh, is very specific for specific parts of the industry. And that's been a real challenge for me because the industry, as you can imagine, is huge. Um, we've partnered with a filmmaker, somebody that uh, an, an ex-Hollyoaks film actor uh, become filmmaker who uses really smart 3D film, 360 filming, artificial intelligence so that we can create digital assets to allow people, which would be almost everybody, who wouldn't normally be able to have access on site to a, a dangerous site or a private site, allow them access to kind of wander around, not in a virtual world, because that relies on goggles, and I know that not everybody is a massive fan of those, but in a 360 world, so you'd be able to navigate a plant, a processing plant, a distribution network, all the way down to one of the modules that we're working on now is leak detection. So you get big industrial leak detectors, as you can imagine, but you also get handheld devices for the for the ladies and gents who work on the pipes in the streets, in your home. Uh, we're producing assets for those people as well. All right. Well, we're going to take a pause there, and uh, I think you're, you're- – venture is the right thing at the right time for a new industry thanks for joining me andy and thanks for telling about the digital assets which needs segue into gareth gareth who works with a great uh, organization in the northwest uh, marketing signals but not just the northwest is it uh, gareth you've pivoted the digital space so that you can recruit and 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 work from anywhere tell me about your team and how you spread it all out Absolutely. And to be honest with you, I think that this is one of the ways that the pandemic has changed the world of work for the better. Um, we used to have an office in Altrincham and we would regularly struggle with recruitment, of getting people to actually not work in Manchester city centre. Never mind, bump 20 minutes out on the tram to Altrincham. Whereas now we're fully remote, there's 25 of us based all over the world from uh, England to the Philippines, via America, uh, Europe. Um, we, it gives me a wider talent pool to recruit from to start with. Um, and that alone makes it a great appeal for me as a business owner that's trying to grow my business. Still uh, proudly Northwest-based, I'll have you know. Uh, but the the access to a global marketplace of, of labour is certainly something that, is, uh, that we've taken advantage of, shall we say. Um, and just the, the ability to add more flexibility in, in the type of skill sets that we recruit for. And if you think that if I've got somebody based in Asia, then they can, my team can give them a task at 5 p.m. UK. By the time we get into work at 9 a.m. the next day, the task's done because there's somebody doing an eight-hour shift. That's the UK team. Finished. If you're dealing with... So, if you're dealing with regular marketing pro, promo, sort of proactive stuff, that sounds really interesting. You can get ideas from around the world. 
if it was more sensitive stuff, how do you ensure if you've got got everyone spread around the world that the laws that you're using, the data protection laws, the internet intellectual property laws are being abided by? How can you as the owner of the business uh, regulate your staff in a way that your clients are happy with? Yeah, I mean, it's a valid question and everything that we do is uh, guided by UK law and governance by the ICO and the regulations that they give us. Um, very much a, a need-to-know basis, I suppose, is the way we would look at it. Some of our offshore workers are complete in tasks that don't involve sensitive data, yeah. so maybe they're just going to go and grab stats that are publicly available. So there's not too much concern for us on that side of things. Everybody that works for us is uh, directly employed, so they will be under UK contract law. So we, we have taken into consideration the... The, the data data risk, shall we say. We believe that we've negated it as much as somebody in your office in, in Teesside could put a USB pen into a work machine and steal all the data anyway. So um, I also think that using uh, cloud technologies, two-factor authentication, just gives us uh, um, security. In, in in our data that we use at work. Excellent. Now you've you've built this team, and what kind of what kind of businesses are you providing? What kind of services are you out there with? Yeah, so we we focus solely on uh, search engine marketing. So uh, be like yourselves, we do a lot of digital PR. Uh, we do a lot of Google ad management, so or pay per click, as we would call it. We, we don't. And we do that, work... We we would subcontract something like that to someone like you. So it's good to know you there. Well, Maybe we'll uh, stay on the line afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> and then our core business, if you like, where 80% of our revenue comes from, is uh, SEO, so the organic yeah. uh, route of getting people up to the, to the top of Google. Absolutely. And that's all we do. We're, we're not developers, we're not designers, we're, we're literally search engine marketers. I think we probably will talk after this programme, actually, because that's definitely not something we do. We're, we're content and uh, we're dealing dealing with uh, brand management and so on. But let's look at where you, you... It's very interesting. You've built this business, you've got some organic growth, you've spread it around the world. Um, you've also decided how much time... Now, you've, you've implemented a four-day week. Now, having listened to you explain it... With with different people in different parts of the world who may have culturally different days off, for example, uh, 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 and there might be a different approach to a weekend and an Anglo-Saxon way of working. But if you were to look at an Anglo-Saxon way of working, you would do your de- definitive week would be four days. Yes, tell me how it works. Yes, yeah, so um, I believe it was Drucker that said what can be measured can be managed. Correct. Uh, I'm very much a process-driven brain. So I believe that if I can track the output of my team, then I can manage their attendance in a more fairer way. So, um, I mean, if we go back 100 years, um, Henry Ford introduced the five-day week, and people thought he was crazy. Um, It was in the UK, it was John Boot, the boots the chemist, that um, accidentally created the weekend, if you like, by finding his staff were more efficient by working five days because they were more well rested. Um, the, I mean, the whilst we do take an Anglo-Saxon approach to our four-day week, and we do do a long weekend. So um, we have two teams, team one, team two. You, you basically have a short weekend and a long weekend twice a month. So Monday to Thursday, Tuesday to Friday, Monday to Thursday, Tuesday to Friday. And what we have found is that covers off... Um, 
any Islamic holidays, that comes off any Christian holidays. The, 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 the weekend itself was actually formed because of the Jewish Sabbath being on a Saturday and the Christian Sabbath being on a Sunday. Yeah. So I think that by stretching it slightly to cover off the Islamic Sabbath, I believe that we have, um, I'm not sure whether they call it Sabbath, so apologies if I'm wrong there. Um, I think we've covered off everything that we can to take into account all of the different cultures of staff that we employ wherever they sit, wherever, wherever, their, wherever their desk may be. Okay, so that's quite an interesting way of looking at it. You know, Friday prayers, Jewish Sabbath, Christian Sabbath. Uh, and of course, I suppose with the generation gap, so Friday can be a millennial Sabbath as well, because there is a, there is a, there is a bent towards a new generation of workers who want to work four days a week. But nevertheless, there's still a requirement to do the amount of time in four days. And I was, I, I mean, I have resisted this, and I intend to resist it for the time being. But I was looking at Boston University today, which uh, which reports on a number of these trends, and they were pointing out that there are, if you are doing a conventional business where people are face to face in a creative environment or in a work environment, a shop or a factory, a production place, then you will still have to squeeze uh, for more long, more work into fewer days. And there are some downsides to doing that, which include, you know, the, the, the fact that the work is more intense. The actual working days are more stressful. Valid, valid point made by some people. I believe that if you were trying to do it when you're 100% office based, maybe it would be more difficult. I know that I was always guilty when I was in the office of taking half an hour to make a cup of tea. Mm. Whereas, because we're fully remote, I find that I can go and make a cup of tea in 10 minutes. Yeah. So, just as a, I'm kind of using that as an example of, of, of time efficiency. Now, we used to work nine till five with half an hour for lunch. So a seven and a half hour working day, five days a week. What we have done is we've implemented that we need eight hours trackable out, not necessarily billable because we do a lot of training, eight hours a day trackable output. So you can also do those eight hours anytime that suits you between seven and seven mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I have young children or my team have young children. Sometimes it's just not convenient to work nine till five, nine till half five. Um, so, yes, we have elongated our work day by half an hour, but we are still only doing a 32 measured hour work week, which is, um, I'm a strange employer. I never believed that two days off is a fair swap for five days on. Now, I'm sure that's Hopefully no, I, I think one day off. I think you're right. But... One day off for five days on is probably better. <laughs> no, it's, I come from a different angle, but nevertheless, I see. I do see your point. So you've you've got this team. It's it, it seems to be pretty flexible. What about what about the age of your team in, in terms of the of, of a four day week? The research from America was suggesting that older workers, which are in, I mean, I've got a small team of uh, 12 people and there are four people over 50, which, uh, and, and actually as you get older, and I'm in my 50s, it is actually more difficult to work a long day. You might work to work more rather than longer. So it, it, it might be horses for courses, but it also has to be fair. So you're not discriminating against someone from that point of view. Yeah. And um, so my team is, um, so 25 of us, I would say probably 10 of us, late 30s to late 40s. Uh, the, the rest kind of split from 19 to 34, for argument's sake. Um, 
most of them love having the, the again the way I try and look at it. It's not having an extra day off a week. It's having two long weekends a month. Yeah. So and because we're remote as well, it's not work from home. It's work from anywhere. So there's no reason why you couldn't do an early shift on a Thursday, fly to Barcelona, have tapas on Las Ramblas on Thursday evening, fly back Tuesday morning, do a uh, 11-7 on a Tuesday, and you've had an amazing weekend away with with no use of annual leave. (laughs) So I think that a lot of people like that. Um, I always hoped that more of them would uh, create side hustles, volunteer, train, I'm sure they all just play PlayStation, (laughs) (laughs) but that's that's up to them. With the um, way of trying to do it in a sort of non-discriminatory way, I know that a couple of my leadership team probably do log in five days a week, but they're doing five short days because, again, I'm a parent. I'm a uh, single parent 50% of the time, so I know that when I have to do school pickup at 3.20, right in the middle of the afternoon, it kind of knocks off my afternoon. So it's quite nice to have that buffer of, a, of the fifth day to catch up on any work that, that you need to. But if I'm honest with you, I'd rather ban overtime as well because <laughs> I, I do actually believe that a rested mind is an efficient mind. Well, that's great. Gareth, thank you very much for talking to us. The best of luck. We will need to talk uh, offline. This is a business show after all. We've got to keep business going. Andy, great to talk to you as well. And best of luck in your new venture, a new venture for a new world, for a new economy. Thank you very much. Now we turn to something else. Over to my colleague, Josh Haberkin. He's been speaking with Rachel Deans, Group Head of Learning and Organisational Development at Salutum Care and Education. Thank you, Graham. This week I'm joined by Rachel Deans, who's the Group Head of Learning and Organisational Development at Salutum Care. It's a national provider of care, support and education to individuals with complex needs. Thank you for joining me, Rachel. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. So it's an exciting time for Salutum. I think you're about to launch your first um, graduate scheme. That's what we're here to talk about. So could you tell me a little bit about it and how you hope to find those next key leaders in social care? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this is a graduate scheme that we've been talking about for about 18 months now in terms of how do we bring in the next generation of talent into the sector and in particular into Salutum. Um, So we are trying to really change the narrative around a career in care because it absolutely can be a lifelong career. There's so many different opportunities with it. And we really want to demonstrate that to other people. So a graduate scheme is something that gives people that exposure to lots of different areas of Salutum. So within the operational department, so you get to visit the services, see how things run on a day-to-day basis, and ultimately, why do we do what we do? Uh, But then you also get that experience of working in some of our shared service functions. So things like finance, business development, and the people side. So collectively, it's bringing all those bits of the jigsaw together so that uh, management graduates can then decide actually maybe there's a career path that they've not thought about before. So it's really giving people that opportunity, which we believe is really unique. Yeah. So you've mentioned there that they're going to try different departments and, and so on. Why do you think that that's so important and how long does that run for? 
Yeah, so it's an 18-month program, so it's quite an investment, uh, but it gives people that exposure and, and uh, ability to be able to dip their toe into lots of different areas, gain some insights and the practical experience at the same time. And I think that's really important because we no longer live in a world where you leave education and you know exactly what you want to do. And I think if you do, that's, that's really rare and, and hats off to people that do that. We can now change our careers at any time. You know, we can access different training, qualifications and different skills. So this graduate program is very much about, right, come in and try all of these different things. You know, you might be at uni uh, and kind of focused on finance, for example. But actually, if you ever considered finance in the world of social care uh-huh. and actually what those links mean to the quality of care that we provide. So that's one of our aims with the graduate management scheme is to be able to start to connect some of those dots, perhaps explore and be curious about different areas of a business that you might not have considered before. Excellent. Now, you've talked about all the different areas they're going to be working in. Is there going to be kind of a a core consistent um, touch point for them, almost like a mentor or something like that? Yeah, we've got some great wraparound support plans for our graduates uh, people that come onto the placement. So um, they will have the support of some of our operational senior managers. So the graduates will be placed within uh, either our adults division or our supported living division. Uh, and we have our divisional directors that are absolutely very excited about this uh, scheme that we're doing that and are already uh, absolutely engaged with it and can't wait for that to start. So they'll have that direct line management with um, a senior leader. They'll also have mentoring from a member of our executive team as well, which I think is is really exciting. Mm. And that mental role is about helping that person really put things together. So observing and reflecting on what they're seeing and experiencing with each area of the business and then being able to reflect upon that and go, well, actually, what does that mean in the grand scheme? How do all of those things interconnect? And also, where do they play a role as well? So where can they influence? Where can they start to to shape things and make some of those changes? They'll also have a pastoral manager as well. So somebody that sits within our dedicated leadership and careers team who is there almost as that independent party to make sure that throughout the whole 18 months that they're getting something out of it, um, to act as a bit of an independent coach as well, um, and to just help them navigate as well throughout the programme. Course, it, it sounds amazing. I wish uh, I'd spotted something like this 10 years ago or so when I was leaving university. I know it's hard to believe because I'm so fresh-faced. But So <laughs> what, what kind of people are you looking for and, and how could I apply? You know, What would be the, the right personality type? It, or Yeah, so we really pride ourselves within Salutum on it's about your values. Um, we can train you up in everything else, but you have to have... Um, I suppose that curious mind, you need to be supportive at the end of the day because we're an organisation where we are people looking after people. Mm -hmm. So um, it's about having that growth mindset of coming into this programme and really wanting to embrace the opportunities. It can be challenging at times. You know, any organisation can be challenging. Um, But with the right support and the right mindsets, you know, someone could really get a lot out of this. And we are absolutely willing to invest 
in our management graduates as well throughout this program. So come in with an open mindset, make the most of every opportunity. Um, and we've got some fantastic training as well that we're offering here, um, you know, leadership development uh, programs that we offer in-house. So again, embrace it, make the most of it, and you will get something at the end of the 18 months, I guarantee it. So if you're sat at home and you're watching this and you think that's ideal for me or that's ideal for my son, daughter, niece, nephew, grandchild, whoever, how can I? How can they apply? Yep. So check out the links that are hopefully going to be with this uh, podcast. There's a, a small application form that we would ask you to fill in. Um, and then we are going to be shortlisting um, in February into March and the placement will start in September. So that online form gives you a little bit more information. You can also check us out on the website as well. Go and find out a little bit more about who we are and what we do. And what's the website, Rachel? Uh, the website, oh, now you're going to test me. Uh, so the website, I believe, is salutumcareandeducation.com. Hopefully you'll correct me on that if it's uh, if it's different. But check us out. Google us. We will come up very, very easily uh, and you can find out who we are. Excellent. All right, Rachel. Well, thank you very much for your time. We're going to go back to Graham now for, for the end of the show. Thank you. Thank you. Now, if you'd like to join us as a guest on the Northern Business Podcast, feel free to get in touch. We'd love to hear from you, and uh, we will thank our podcast producer, Harry Sinclair, and technical operator, Robin Campbell. Next time you join us for the Northern Business Podcast, we'll be looking forward to hearing from other businesses about the north around the north of England. Never miss an episode, like, rate, or subscribe on YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts.